Welcome to the Water Resources Podcast. I am Bridget Scanlon. In this podcast, we discuss water challenges with leading experts, including topics on extreme climate events, overexploitation, and potential solutions towards more sustainable management. It's my pleasure to welcome Lawrence Gill to the Water Resources Podcast. Lawrence, thank you so much for joining me today. Lawrence is a professor in environmental engineering in the School of Engineering at Trinity College in Dublin. I attended Trinity College in the late 70s, where I studied geology. We're both in the museum building. He went up one stairs and and I went up the other side to geology. So it's really fun to talk with you today about water issues in Ireland. Lawrence, maybe you can give our listeners an idea of what type of issues you will be covering today and related to your research. Yeah, thanks, Bridget. I describe myself as an environmental engineer, which I think kind of means I get involved in quite a lot of different research projects. Certainly since I started in academia, I've had quite a sort of omnivorous diet, looking at both air pollution, water pollution, hydrology, hydrogeology type aspects. I suppose my research tends to focus more on field studies, where we collect instruments and collect a lot of data in the field. And then we obviously bring samples back to the lab, analyze them, and then we develop a lot of mathematical models as well, which we then use to get further insights into the processes. I suppose my career for the first seven or eight years, I worked in industry in the UK designing wastewater treatment processes. So that's what my background was when I first moved into academia. But through the study of more diffuse sources of contaminants, particularly septic tanks in catchments, rural catchments, I soon got more interested in how contaminants move through the the soil down into the aquifers, got more involved in hydrogeology, groundwater engineering, etc. And I've moved in, I suppose, (laughs) quite a few different directions en route through academia, just following different interests, I guess. Yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, I really enjoyed reading many of your papers and particularly enjoyed the papers on air quality and whether you should ride your bike or you'd be exposed to more pollutants or take the bus and all of those practical aspects and really fun. But today we're going to focus on water issues and I'd like to talk about water pollution and linkage to agriculture sector and wastewater management. You mentioned septic tanks, also flooding issues, which are a big issue for Ireland and linkages between water and energy. And lastly, but not least, is to discuss how you've been able to link science with the arts through your music and that program, which is fascinating. So I guess first, let's talk a little bit about the general background of water issues in Ireland. I mean, most people think it's a pretty wet country. It just seems to never stop raining. And people ask me when they should go to Ireland. I said, well, you you never know. (laughs) You've just experienced a month of uh, fairly dry weather. And today it's lashing rain, you said. It certainly is, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the whole of June was incredible. I, I think it was barely a drop of rain, but now, now it is. <laughs> it's making up for it today. I can tell you. That. And so, when I look up background information, I mean, eighty-five thousand kilometers of mapped rivers, twelve thousand lakes. Most people use surface water as their source of drinking water. Eighty percent of the population, I think, and twenty percent on groundwater. So when I was doing my studies in the U.S. early on, I studied karst hydrology, and that's water and limestones and stuff, because I thought I would go back to Ireland at that point, and 40% of Ireland is karst systems. So looking at the Environmental Protection Agency report about water quality issues, they mentioned that about 40% of the river sites have high nitrogen levels, 
and rivers and groundwater nurseries in the southeastern part of Ireland are under high pressure from intensive agriculture. Maybe you can describe that a little bit, Lawrence. Yes. So to give this background to some legislation in Ireland, as part of the EU, we're very much working to something known as the Water Framework Directive, which was came into force in 2000. And basically what it was asking was that all EU countries that every river, lake, transitional water, estuaries and groundwater should get to what is known as a good status, that's good ecological status, good chemical status by the year 2027, which seemed quite a long way away in, in 2000, but of course that's just around the corner now. As as you mentioned, in, in Ireland, for example, in, in terms of the water and, and the rivers, still 40% of the rivers are less than good status and we've only got a few years to go. So realistically, this is it's not going to happen at all. All the water source, all the water bodies are going to get to good status but there's there's been this kind of structured approach setting up river basin management plans on these six-year cycles to try to target sources of pollution and improve the the, the status i mean a, a lot of the a lot of the focus has been on nutrients and a lot of really the majority i i, I believe of the nutrients going into the aquatic environment is coming from uh, diffuse sources from agriculture so ag- agriculture is a it's it's a big industry in Ireland. I suppose one of the things that differentiates Ireland from many other EU countries is we don't have this legacy of heavy industrial pollution that a lot of countries like UK or Germany, for example, have. So there's not, from a research perspective, there's not much to study from that perspective, but it's much more my focus and a lot of other researchers here is on the more diffuse sources of pollution from human wastewater treatment plants as, as well. But particularly from agriculture and whether it's from fertilizers being put onto the land or from animals on the land and their feces, et cetera. Right. And so when I was looking at the European Water Framework Directive, it said good status in terms of ecological status and water quality. It doesn't mention water quantity. I didn't see mention of water quantity, but do they consider water scarcity issues also or... They certainly do things like from groundwater. I, I, I work quite a lot on the groundwater-fed ecosystems like wetlands and fens, turlocks, etc. And from that perspective, the quantity is certainly take, taken into account. It, that, that's keeping the ecosystem alive. But you're right. Yeah, in terms of the rivers and lakes, I'm not so sure that is. It's, it's not something it works on actually. But I, I, I don't think that is taken into account so much. It's, it's more the chemical quality and then the ecological quality. Right. Right. And what's nice about the European Framework Directive is they talk about just scoping out the issues in the first phase and trying to figure out what the extent of the problem is, then looking at approaches to mitigate the problem. And then the third phase is evaluating uh, the success of those uh, strategies. I think that's a really nice, logical, step-by-step approach then to uh, to evaluate these uh, problems. So you mentioned the linkage between nutrients and nitrogen and phosphorus issues in the the surface water and groundwater and primarily sourced from agriculture. But looking at the exports from Ireland, 12 billion, I think in 2020 or 21, 2020, 80% of those exports are agricultural products. And it's interesting that, so that's like almost 10 billion is agricultural products. And as you say, we're, we're not a big industrial country. And interesting also is that three and a half billion to the UK must be a little bit difficult these days with Brexit. So I assume the farm lobby is pretty strong in Ireland. It's pretty powerful politically. And so 
And then on the agriculture side, they're promoting expansion of agriculture, food harvest program in 2020 and food wise program in 2025. So on the one hand, you have this push to expand the agriculture, more intensive, more cattle, more fertilizer applications. On the other side, from the environmental point of view, then you're, you're trying to deal with the aspect. So it seems like there's kind of a disconnect there in, in what's being promoted from the agricultural side and then what you're trying to deal with on the environmental side. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a tension between the agricultural industry, et cetera, and, and, and the envir- environmental protection. It is a very strong lobby, the agricultural community, and there's some very, very strong rural politicians. I mean, r- rural politics in, in Ireland is, is quite quite a thing. And as I, I work a lot on these diffuse sources of pollution, it is quite it takes quite a while to kind of understand some of the dynamics that are going. I've lived in cities all my life. The thing, what is important to people in rural communities and as I guess we'll come on to talk about in a minute, a good percentage of, of the population of Ireland lives in rural or semi-rural kind of types environment. And agriculture supplies a lot of jobs. So that that is very powerful. And and also agriculture and the Department of Agriculture funds a lot of research, which is kind of pro-agriculture, as it were. But trying to make things better, but Equally, there's a lot of research funded by the Environmental Protection Agency, which I tend to get my funding from. And definitely, there's no doubt about it, there has been conflicts and different interpretations, let's put it that way, of of, of the same data that are coming out, which uh, it, it makes it interesting. But I mean, th- there's no doubt about it that the agricultural community, you know, have been changing and, and are trying to do things in a more sustainable environmental manner. But at the same time, they, they don't want to reduce their outputs. And as you say, if anything, they, they, they they've been increasing the intensity of farming. But I mean, there, there are clever ways to increase the intensity and maybe not increase the environmental pollutions. But that's that's what's going on at the moment. There's, there's various different angles of research and that, that are looking into these types of things. But from any, from the, the water perspective, our rivers still aren't good and haven't really improved that much over, over the last few years, despite a lot of effort into so-called programs and measures that have been set up by these river, you have these individual river basement management plans that are set up in six-year cycles to try to target bespoke plans for different catchments to try to target pollution and improve the matter. But so, I mean, so far it's been pretty minor. I think the the successes right, right. Uh, or the improvement. And I mean, we've been hearing a lot in in the Netherlands and surrounding countries about impacts of intensive agriculture on environmental quality there. So I think it's similar issues here and. I grew up in a farm in, in, in Kerry in Southwest Ireland and they kept the cattle indoors in, in the winter. And then there was land application yeah. of manure in the spring. And so those sorts of things. But it seems like most of the farmers these days have degrees in agriculture. And <laughs> so it's a, it's a much more sophisticated operation. And there are a lot of regulations that they're trying to abide by. So I think they're trying to improve. So you mentioned maybe it hasn't improved that much. I mean, are they doing riparian buffers next to the stream to try to yeah 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 i mean there's a lot of i I mean i think another issue in ireland that maybe say people in the states wouldn't appreciate is the size of the there's lots of very very small farms people with 20 cattle 50 40 cattle it's that scale and lots of them so i suppose it makes it a bit more difficult to regulate when you've got so many different people that need need to be contacted etc but as the younger generation are coming through there's no, no doubt about it about it they're much more environmentally focused Etc. And and yeah, riparian buffer strips are, are, are a big tool that's been 
introduced with various degrees of success, except over the years to try to improve um, the, the discharge quality and stuff. N- yeah, nutrients right. specifically getting yeah, directly into, yeah. into rivers. I mean, forestry is, an, is another issue that has been targeted. We have very little natural forests, but there's a lot of coniferous, sort of, kind of Sitka, Sitka spruce type forestry that's industrial forestry. And there's been quite a lot of work on the pollution from that particular sediments and then how to improve that. So, the, I mean, certainly the last 20 years, I mean, a lot of research and activity in trying to understand the, the pollution and pollution pathways and and then actions following from that. Right, right. And when you mentioned the size of farms from people here in Texas, where I live now, asked me, well, well, what size was your farm? I'm embarrassed to say, well, it was like 70 acres. And they just think, oh, my gosh, that's just like your backyard, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> With the thousands of yeah. acres. And, I mean, like on one level, from biodiversity level, it means there's a lot more hedgerows, et cetera. FM. But uh, from a regulation, it does make it kind of trickier, I think, with so many right. individuals with small farms to, right, to deal with. Right, right. So another aspect of pollution that you do a lot of and which benefited and leveraged from your work in the UK, your early career there, is looking at wastewater. And I guess considering the population of the Republic, about 5 million and maybe another 2 million from Northern Ireland, much of the area being rural, you mentioned earlier that a third of the the people rely on on on-site wastewater treatment. And the centralized water treatment is mostly secondary treatment, but then the on-site treatment and how well that works and what that is contributing to ground uh, to water quality. Maybe you can describe that a little bit. I think Ireland was fined by the EU for E. coli early on for some of their discharges and stuff. So maybe you can describe that a little bit, uh, Lawrence. Yeah. So when I first came to work in academia, because I've been working in these large-scale wastewater treatment plants, and that was my interest. There was a project by the EPA on septic tanks and there wasn't much else in terms of research funding available and I applied for it. And I, I thought, well, such a tank, it sounds a bit boring. <laughs> um, but actually, the more you get into it, you know, how the effluent goes down through the soil, through the unsaturated zone, down into the groundwater. I mean, it, it just opened up this whole world of in, interest, etc. And so, I mean, Ireland is is incredible in terms of the geology, the, the, the diversity of the geology and, and, and the soils due to previous periods of glaciation, et cetera. So that it's just endless, the sort of fascination in terms of the different permutations of of what can happen. But about one third of the population in, in Ireland uses some form of on-site wastewater treatment. And the, the majority of those, probably 85%, is a septic tank. And then the effluent goes into the, into the grounds. And so I, I spend a lot of time researching how it should go into the grounds, how it should be spread out evenly, for different soil types such that as it percolates down through the soil, you get treatment of potentially pathogenic bacteria and nutrients, et cetera. And also trying to minimize greenhouse gas emissions is something we've been looking at a lot more recently, looking particularly more at the microbial diversity of what's going on in the soil and how we can kind of tweak that to minimize greenhouse gas emissions and also optimize the pollutant removal capacity of soils. So there's a couple of Issues. One of the main issues really in Ireland is low permeability subsoils, particularly up in the northern half of the country. So that the last period of glaciation left left kind of heavy boulder clay across a lot of the country, which is very, very low permeability. So what that means is a lot of this land can't even take the rainfall, let alone this ad- additional wastewater that's been discharged into it. So means a lot of the effluent 
goes through very shallow pathways, probably directly into little streams in, uh, into watercourses without being treated. I mean, the soil itself, if you get unsaturated, one meter unsaturated soil with reasonable permeability, it can be a really excellent treatment medium. So if it's done correctly, it, it's it's a very effective, very sustainable form of sanitation. But in low permeability scenarios, we have to sort of rethink it. We, we've been doing a lot of work recently trying to enhance evapotranspiration using like willow trees, for example. As a, as, as a concept to lower the, the load on the, on, on the soil. And then in, in, in some other parts of the country, we got too fast. Like in, in down in the southeast, it's, it's potentially too fast. And that can lead to think particularly things like nitrate pollutions in, in, in the groundwater underneath. So I sort of ignored it, I guess, when I was younger. But I mean, it's estimated about 3 billion people on, on the planet use some form of on site sanitation. So the more work I do into this, the more. I think, I mean, it's first of all, it's fascinating um, and it's trying to use passive treatment, nature-based type type solutions as, as much as possible in this very kind of dispersed environment where there's very little regulation. Your average person doesn't spend ages maintaining their septic tank. So these types of things have to be very kind of robust, et cetera. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting area of study. And then that, that very much led on to looking at contaminant pathways if you find, say, groundwater has been uh, contaminated, where, where has the contamination come from? Has it come from agriculture or has it come from human wastewater? So the human wastewater is, as a source of contamination, is, is more worrying from a disease perspective because most diseases we catch come by kind of humans. I mean, there are some that cross species, but most of the big ones come directly from human effluent. So we, we've done quite a lot of work looking at contaminant pathways from septic tanks versus agriculture and then various types of risk analysis on 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 those at a kind of catchment level etc and then and how, how can we mitigate that impacts so just just, just in terms of the i know you said the statistic that 80 percent of people in in ireland use surf salt which is i mean there's no doubt that, that that's true it's it's kind of disproportionately effective i think though because dublin is by far and away the largest city and dublin we're right next to the wicklow mountains here so there's big you know Reservoirs effectively up there that, that that supply the whole of Dublin with surface water, but in rural areas, the use of groundwater, particularly kind of single wells for individual houses, is 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 much higher in rural areas. Yeah, I know. Growing up, we had our own well, but then we, after a while, yeah. maybe when 10, 15 years, we linked up with more of a centralized system, but we still had the, the well as backup. Uh, so you you also do research on trying to fingerprint the source of, of contamination. Maybe you can describe that a little bit. You mentioned human and animal sources, and I read sometimes about cryptosporidium outbreaks in West Ireland or different regions. And so maybe you can describe that a little bit. Yeah. So so the sort of traditional measures of pollution is to say if somebody suspects their well, their private well is polluted, they might take a water sample and they test it for E. coli or sometimes ammonia and nitrate and and that can certainly give you an indication that there might be some sort of fecal contamination but what it doesn't do it doesn't tell you where it's coming from because mammals and birds produce e coli and produce nitrogenous waste so what we've been trying to do over the years is to look at more specific compounds that we can say look that must have come from humans and therefore not from agriculture or, or vice versa some things we've looked at are things like caffeine, pharmaceuticals, which are obviously synthetic, artificial sweeteners that are used in foodstuffs and drinks instead of sugar because they, they don't break down very, very readily in the environment. Another thing is fecal sterols. So when we break down cholesterol in our body, we break it down to a certain byproduct, whereas a pig, for example, breaks it down to different byproducts and then a cow breaks it down to a different byproduct. So by looking at these kind of 
ratios of 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 these degradation compounds we have some you can say that that must come from human effluent etc another one for for fluorescent whitening compounds these are that used in detergents and it's quite easy to to monitor for so again we've used those in, in different situations some of these better or, or worse i mean the, the problem about things like caffeine pharmaceuticals artificial sweeteners are that they're, they're costly that they're expensive to analyze for and it's quite costly and you need very specific machines but something more recently been quite exciting about is the sort of rise and ease of molecular biological techniques like DNA sequencing, etc. We're starting to do a lot more work looking at very specific microorganisms that we know must come from a human versus versus from from a cow or a chicken or something. So that there's uh, bacteroides as a species of bacteria. Some are very specific to humans. Some are specific to cows. And then more recently. At the moment, we're doing trials today, actually, where we're, we're dosing Tabasco sauce into septic tanks fields. So when you eat peppers, there's, there's a virus called uh, Peppermotile virus that infects peppers that we eat. And it's totally harmless to humans, but, humans, but it goes goes through us. So we're starting to use this as a as a tracer. So if you pick up a pepper, it must come from some sort of human food source, etc. And, you know, the aim is to see how, when it goes down through the soil, does it get bound up in the soil? Or is it more mobile and makes its way down into the groundwater, et cetera? And then we hope maybe you can use that as, as some form of tracer. So we do a lot of research on, on this type of aspects, specific compounds. How do they break down as they're coming down through the soil? How persistent are they in, in relation to maybe more pathogenic forms of pathogenic organisms that we're really worried about? Right, um, yeah. It's it's funny, people ask, do you drink coffee or not? But maybe even without explicitly drinking coffee, you may be drinking it in the water and you were getting the caffeine in, in the yeah, in the water. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's extremely interesting because, I mean, in order to treat the problem or deal with the problem, then it's important to understand the source. And then it may be that your septic tank is too close to your well or, or you know, maybe need to be locate the well in a different place to avoid the, the pollution. You mentioned earlier the water governance aspects and the European Union and the Water Framework Directive that was established in, in about 2000. And uh, then the Irish Environmental Protection Agency was created in the early 90s, 93, after passing the Act in 92. And then also Irish Water was created in, in 2013, Ishka Aaron. And then in that time period, they were talking about charging for water. And I can remember the uproar there was. <laughs> Maybe you can uh, describe that a little bit, what Ishgairn or Irish water is and, and what they were trying to accomplish and how that has evolved. Yeah, so the, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Every county, local authority had their own. They dealt with their own wastewater and 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 drinking water. So they had their own engineers and etc. Dealing with that, some of these these counties are very small by international standards. So I think it made sense to get a, to to centralise this expertise etc. To take over the running of the centralised water and wastewater treatment works. And when it was set up, the idea was to charge people for water, as happens in most other countries, really, and. In the urban areas, I went around putting in water meters, which again, seemed like a very sensible thing to do to be able to quantify how much water people use. And then one of the key things was to be able to identify leaks and then to notify people, well, either Irish water themselves to know about the leaks or to identify, tell people on their land, on, in their property that there's a leak and can you do something about it? But it was, I think it's fair to say it was kind of poorly introduced in that it was just, it was just seen as an additional tax. Well, it was an additional tax. There was no 
it was extra money people would have to to, to spend on water without seeing the benefit on the other side. Because I mean, like we all pay for water. Obviously, we pay via central taxation, but it's not a direct cost. So I think I think about six months, nine months, they did charge for water, but as March's demonstrations, although and it was very contentious. In the end, they they rolled back on it. So we have Irish Water, and we have all the water meters, which are still being read, and which are very useful from a data perspective. But we're not getting charged directly for water. So there is this there is this kind of misguided notion with some people that sort of water is free and should be free. I mean, it's it's not free. I mean, there's a massive infrastructure to produce water coming into your tap, and also just as important, more importantly, from my perspective, the, the wastewater side when you flush your toilet how it gets treated, et cetera. And, and that wasn't explained very well, I don't think at all at the time. But anyway, that happened. So we don't pay for, directly for water. And and it really, it means it's still very underfunded, I I, I believe, the, the, the water sector um, in Ireland. I was looking up some of the aspects related to that, and it seemed like they were going to provide about a certain baseline amount for free, 80 litres per day for free per person. That would be 20 gallons per day. And then above that, then they would be charging maybe 0.5 cents per litre or 2 cents per gallon. But I do remember one of my siblings in Wicklow installed a well at that time because she had a, a fairly large family and so was concerned that all the showers, etc. So it was an interesting time, but it's nice that you have the legacy now of all these water meters and then you can quantify how much water people are using and, and changes in demand. So that's important data to have. So Yeah, I mean, it, it also, I mean, at the time, it, there was a lot of debates about rural versus urban living because people... With centralized facilities would have to pay for water whereas people in in the country like you say with, with wells didn't and then there's other debates about oh how much money people are spending on roads versus so it opened up a whole kind of can of worms in 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 the country really about proportionality of taxation what what do we pay for and when we live in different places so yeah it was quite contentious and and, it, and it's interesting i mean like, for example in denmark if you if you live in the country say you have a septic tank you have to pay a fee to the government tax to discharge your effluent into the soil and because it's deemed as a form of potential pollution. And that led to a lot of people just designing closed basin evapotranspiration with low treatment systems, for, not from the perspective that they that we have where we have low permeability soils and it won't work, but that they did it from a financial perspective. To, so that so they, they argue, well, there's no discharge into the soil. Whereas now we're using th- these types of basins to in areas where the, the, the soil is is too too low permeability to take the effluent. Yeah, I mean there there's a lot of discussion these days about uh, social vulnerability and and water access and water being a basic human right. And and we had a National Academy discussion maybe about a year ago, and they were pushing forward Ireland having free water being a very advanced. <laughs> yeah, of course it's a it is definitely a human right, and, and I think South Africa was one of the first countries that introduced this certain amount for free, and in this kind of rising scale as you use more and more you get charged proportion and of course you don't want people cutting back from the amount of water they use from a health perspective but at the same time you want people to feel that you can't just leave taps running non-stop and it doesn't matter so that i think there's a balance there somewhere right so we've talked a lot about water quality issues and linkages to agriculture and wastewater and on-site wastewater treatment systems but another big issue in Ireland in terms of water is uh, flooding. I mean, everybody thinks of Ireland as being a very wet country, and that's why it's so green. But one of the issues with that then is flooding. And I was just looking at uh, the Irish Times, and they said 
one of the headlines just recently was Tralee hit by biblical flash flooding a few weeks ago in June and and then various years where you had a lot of flooding. Maybe you can describe that a little bit, Lawrence, and, and what they are doing to try to alleviate some of these issues. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it seems, I guess, alongside a lot of other places in Europe and probably the world, that frequency of severe flooding is increasing and it's been attributed to changes in the climate, etc. So, I guess in Ireland, the, the two main sources of flooding is fluvial flooding, particularly from some of these very low permeability type catchments, very fast runoff off the soils. That is probably what was going on down in Tralee. And then groundwater flooding, which is something I, I work on a lot. So, I again, kind of a sort of legacy for me from working in industry in the UK, I, I used to do a lot of modeling of sewer networks. When I first came here, one of, one of the academics here had, was working on cast systems, and we had this idea that we could model these these underground conduits using the same principles as pipe pipe networks, because unlike most kind of groundwater systems, uh, you, know, you get turbulent flow through these the, the, these pipes. So I started to work on mathematical modeling of some of these systems that are out in in, in the west. So we have we have, we have cast, as you say, across probably half the country, but. Some of the more recognisable areas of cast are certainly in, in the West. A lot, a lot of our cast is underlain by quite is is low low level low, lowland cast and underlain by quite heavy deposits of soils. So it's not maybe as uh, spectacular as some places you might see in Europe or America, but but we we do have places like the Burren, which really have the more kind of classical cast scenery. But that the lowland nature of a lot of our cast systems means that. We do get quite a lot of groundwater flooding where the, the 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 water level come to the surface from from these cast systems and flood the lands. Now the the flooding, the speed of flooding is much slower. The rise, if you like, of the flood walls is much lower than the sort of more fluvial flash floods that you get. But it but it, it hangs around a lot lot longer. So from a kind of damage perspective, it's more insidious, I guess. It in quite a lot of cast areas due to this lowland nature we, we have these lakes these ephemeral lakes which are known as turlock so turlock in irish means dry lake so in in the, in the summertime it's it's, it's like a, a field like an empty kind of bowl of field and cattle graze and etc but then in the winter time the the system underneath becomes overpressurized if you like and surcharges up into the basin and creates these lakes and then there's turlocks and these things bounce up and down according to the, the the rainfall and and when we first started doing this we were looking at the ecology because you get very unique vegetation that can sort of tolerate these fluctuating conditions flooding conditions but of course under and the really extreme rainfalls these everybody knows where these turlocks are and you wouldn't build a house in the middle of a, a turlock because it would flood every year but in extreme conditions these you know go beyond their their normal boundaries and create groundwater flooding and this seems to have been getting worse over the last 20 or 30 years in, in some areas so there's a, a particular area in South Galway with some very big conduits under, underneath the ground, very big cave systems and many, many turlocks at the surface that we've been studying for, well, I've been studying for 20 years, but it's been going a, a, a long time. And we're using these models that we've developed now to develop flood alleviation systems. So once you get to certain levels, having these overland bypass channels that take the water down to the sea more quickly to sort of take the top off the flood such that the area isn't flooded for sort of two, two months at a time. I mean, this has been going on for quite a long time, but it looks like we're getting closer and closer to this and uh, getting past planning permission, et cetera, and actually being built. I mean, we, we don't want to interrupt the ecology. We, we, we do want the, the systems to flood and have the same kind of ecology. But in these really extreme periods, we don't want to be flooding the people's houses and uh, railway lines, et cetera. 
So it's a, it's a very interesting project. And then there's all issues about taking floodwaters directly down into the bay and how that impacts on the aquatic life in the marine. So we're having to model the marine environment as well. So it's all very interesting. So there's 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 two agencies. There's one, the OPW, Office of Public Works, that looks more at that they're they're involved in flood, sort of flood risk assessments for rivers and groundwater, and then the Geological Survey of Ireland, they specifically more on on, on the groundwater size. And the last many years, they've been coming up with flood risk assessments for different parts of the country, designating some lands as one in a hundred years this might flood, one in fifty years this might flood, etc. Right. But the cast systems are so kind of specific that you need it's very difficult to have a kind of generic model for them. I think. Right. Well, you definitely see the linkage between groundwater and surface water in those areas. I mean, oftentimes we manage those systems separately and they're very siloed. But I mean, in, in that system that you just described with the water table rising and then creating this ephemeral lake, you can see that their groundwater and surface water are highly connected. And then with the yeah. car system, it's kind of like an underground river system. And so it's easiest for people to understand how groundwater is somewhat similar to surface water. So these are nice examples. And and yes, I mean, it's nice that you are maintaining the ecosystems and stuff, but then also dealing with the excessive flooding and trying to drain that off and then considering potential impacts on the coastal waters. So there's a lot of discussion these days on energy issues in Europe and with the war in Ukraine and shortages and all of that sort of thing. But in Ireland, you were describing some of the linkages between groundwater and energy with the example in Trinity of those heat pump wells that are installed in front of the museum building. Maybe you can describe that a little bit, Lawrence. Yeah. So, I mean, in in terms of, say, the picture of renewable energy here, the, the main thing has been wind energy over the last 20 years. So that can supply up to about 30% of the electricity and there's more plans for wind turbines out, out um, deeper offshore, etc. But really, it only targets the, the electricity, it produces electricity. But in terms of the heat sector, the vast majority of our energy is from gas and oil and um, to some extent coal. We used to burn some peats as well, which I guess we can come on to in a minute, but um, that, that's been phased out. So there's a sort of nascent interest that's now building in terms of geothermal energy in Ireland, which I'm starting to get, I'm starting to get very interested in, and as as are other uh, others. And I think realistically, for most of Ireland, we're talking about quite low entropy type systems, shallow, shallow geothermal. We don't have hot rocks close to the surface like they might do in say Ireland or Italy, although there, there possibly some potential up in, in the north of Ireland, but. I think in general, we're talking about relatively shallow, maybe down to a kilometre or, 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 or shallower type systems. And it's just starting to be looked at more seriously in a few large scale projects for sort of more district heating type approaches are being starting to be constructed and, and designed. So here in, in Trinity, there's a Trinity's a very old university, 1592, it was set up. And certain areas that you think would be hallowed ground and never be touched, but just outside, which there's a little square outside my, my, my building that Bridget knows very well. And it's been dug up over the last two years and they've drilled 22 meter wells, geothermal wells down to 180 meters. And then these, these are now going to be heating two quite two big accommodation blocks, old accommodation blocks that they've only just been switched on literally a few weeks ago, even in the summer. So we haven't really tested them yet, but that's the idea. So it's, it's great. We get some data and I'm, I'm interested in sort of modeling the groundwater side of that and also, in the more kind of suburban areas, we've got t- tight amount of land. Can we realistically use some of these shallow 
geothermal type ground source heat pumps as a concept. I mean, there's quite a few people use them out in in more rural locations where they have bigger gardens or areas, etc. But it's 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 something I, I think is going to be an increasing amount of activity in in the next few years. Right. And so maybe you can describe that a little bit. I mean, so you is it a closed loop system in Trinity then that's planned and do they put the water underground then and then the ground uh, heat it in the winter then and then circulate it in the, the buildings then to heat the buildings in the winter? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a closed loop system. So you're not using the direct water from under underground. So there's a heating fluid goes down into the ground which picks up the heat, the small amount of heat from the ground water and comes back up. And then that goes through a heat exchanger, which transfers the heat into the water that then goes into the radiator system in the building. Now, in, in some scenarios, you have a so-called open loose system where loops it where you're actually taking the, the, the water itself from, from the ground water up, take, extracting the heat, and then you, then you have to inject that back down somewhere else, the cold water, obviously away from the, the source where you're picking up the, the, the hot water. So it, it depends on the... The nature of the groundwater as to which is more effective and which should we should be used, I think. And and theoretically you could use that also for air conditioning if it gets too hot in the summer, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not normally a problem here in Ireland. Well, you never know with uh, the warming. <laughs> but yeah, I mean it's interesting because I see things from a sort of northern European perspective, and we you know, we always worry about our main energy uses in the winter for heating. But of course, in other countries, it's maybe in Texas. I don't know. Air conditioning is is one of the main energy and uses in, in hot weather. Right, right. And so there's a lot of discussion then about energy sources, and that has been changing in Ireland, as you mentioned, increasing wind energy. And some of the statistics I was looking at, almost 50% still relying on natural gas and some electricity power plants based on oil and. But in recent years, then they've been closing down the power plants that were using turf for Namona, ESB, closing down these in one slated Eden Derry, I guess, is slated to be phased out this year. So maybe you can describe that a little bit, but people can still go to a bog and, and cut their own turf and, and store that turf for household heating, but not any industrial uses. Is that correct? Yeah. So in Ireland, Particularly in the Midlands, we have these lot where we used to have a lot of raised bogs that developed over ten thousand years of accumulation of the the moss, the sphagnum growing. And I think from about the nineteen forties, I mean, and people have used that in rural locations that, that, that they cut the turf, dry it out, and and burn it. It's not amazingly efficient as a heat source. It's there and it's it's available. But then a state company was set up called Bordnemona to industrially harvest these bogs in in the Midlands. Did that over, you know, several decades. I, th- I think in the 1960s, it was providing up to about 40% of the electricity in Ireland. But I mean, the last 10, 15 years, it's been down at about 8% of the electricity. Natural gas and oil have been by far and away the, the, the major suppliers of electricity. But it's been deemed to be not 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 great from a climate perspective and, and also from an ecological perspective but i mean there's fast tracks now of the midlands are just these blank excavated peat, peatlands with almost no vegetation growing on them so last year the government decided to, to stop all industrial um, harvesting and then um, they've set up a, a scheme known as pcas peatlands climate action scheme uh to try to re- reverse this and and Bring these to try to get these peatlands to start to grow again, basically to re-wet the peatlands so that they start to 
the sphagnum, the moss starts to grow again, starts to lock in carbon, which is a very slow progress process, but also start to generate proper natural bogs with, with all the biodiversity benefits. So this company, Bordnemona, <laughs> now calling themselves a climate solutions company, and they have this extensive scheme to to rewet all the, you know these thousands of hectares of excavated peatlands, and we're we're now starting to do a lot of research into this as to how, how do you hold the water back? You can do it via bonds, blocking drains, etc. But what is the optimum conditions for the sphagnum to grow? So you, you can't dry out too much in, in in the winter, otherwise it will die, and equally can't be flooded too deep in in sorry can't dry out in the summer, and can't be too deep in the winter. So there's so there's this kind of sweet spot that's needed to to try to regenerate this this type of this vegetation. Once it gets established, it to an extent creates its own kind of micro hydro, hydrology. But in the first ten to twenty years, it's going to be tricky to to get get this sphagnum to grow. So I work a lot on this kind of eco-hydrology and it, it, it's very interesting trying to get the right hydrological conditions and then trying to model in model what's going on and then tweaking it etc tweaking the, the, the different levels to try to optimize this and does this uh, provide work also for some of the people that are working in the local yeah. communities so that that's an interesting aspect also yeah so i mean i think the, the government's spending a lot of money on this rewetting of the bogs and it certainly is helping from a environmental sustainability perspective but i think it's also it's it's also about the local economy because again in the midlands a high number of people are involved in this industrial harv- harvesting of the peatlands directly employed by born ammonia and then all the subsidiary com- companies that provide machinery etc and so suddenly stopping that would put a lot of people out of work so now these people are employed in reverse using the same machinery but to, to build buns and dip block drains etc and it provides employment over maybe a short relatively short period but at least it it's kind of softens that blow if you like in, in these communities in the midlands so we've talked a lot about hydrology issues and i was extremely impressed with your program trying to combine science with the arts through music and the inception horizon and also watched uh, the uh, performance in the museum building i guess the day before lockdown and then the film and the cars performance in slovenia in a cave maybe you can describe that a little bit lawrence it's extremely impressive and what motivated you to do that and how it yeah well, I suppose where it all comes. I mean, I, I I play a lot of music in my spare time. I mean, a lot of it's kind of traditional music, not not just Irish music. But I play a lot of, sort of French, Italian, and music's very important to me. And I sing in a choir, etc. But it's always struck me that you can hear a piece, piece of music that you hadn't heard since you were sort of five years old, and straight away you can remember the tune or the words. It comes straight back to you. Whereas I give a lot of lectures to students, and I can guarantee two minutes after they walk out of the lecture theatre that they can't remember a thing I've said. So I've always been interested in that can we somehow combine music and, and other forms of art to help people to understand certain concepts, scientific concepts or, or, or any concepts really. And and I suppose working with cast, I, I did, can we somehow write some piece of music that mimics the rain falling onto the land, how it percolates down maybe through the soil, through the epicasts, down into the conduits, getting faster and faster, more and more kind of joining up together and eventually coming out in a spring somewhere and I, I as I say I sing in a choir as well and the the person who runs the choir the artistic director got quite excited about this and so she she, she took some of my words and, and composed this piece of music 
called Inception Horizon. I took the whole choir and we went, went down some caves in, in, in the borough, not not tourist caves, proper caving caves. And it was about two years of sort of building up to this and writing. I was, I was writing the lyrics and she was writing the music. And again, the, the pace of the music somehow, it kind of drops, the, the pitch drops, mimicking the water dropping as you come through the system. And, and then and it but speeds up as, as, as the flows are getting more and more combined. And so we had this in the music, this amazing building that I work in the museum building, which just we'd arranged this event, a public perception event on cast. So it wasn't just this piece of music. There was a, we had poets speaking, we had scientists, geologists, etc., giving talks. We had different visuals, different projections onto the onto the wall, onto the stone. And it was lucky because it, it was literally the day before we we shut the whole country shut down. COVID had just it's just been a few cases and. It was the last day. And anyway, so we had this big event and, and the culmination of this was giving, giving the, the world premiere of this choral piece of music, which went down re- really well. And then we always planned to, to sing this in a cave as well somewhere. And originally we were going to do it in Ireland, but then of course lockdown changed everything for a couple of years. But I, I worked out with people in Slovenia. Slovenia is one of the centers of kind of research into cast. They have this so-called classical cast in a generic cast in the Balkans. And and they, they got very keen about the idea, the idea could the choir come across and, and, and sing the piece of music. So we all went over there in this September, last September, to perform the piece, which is amazing in these spectacular caves. And then the other thing we did was there's a UNESCO Futures Festival where we had the, the recording of, the, of us singing the music and then took a cameraman into some of these caves in the borough and we captured footage and we put together a film that kind of cut between us singing in our posh clothing in the museum building and then the underground scenario working our way through the cast um, system following the flow of the, of the water into, into time with the music and so we submitted that into this competition and it, it came third overall which was which was great in the people's pop- popular choice so it's been Really interesting, but it's, I mean, it has been effective. It's definitely got more people interested in, in understanding how water flows un, under, underneath the ground in, the, in these systems. And I'm involved in some other kind of art science type collaborations now on the back of that. And it, it's, apart from being enjoyable, I think it is worthwhile from an educational perspective. Right. So I think the UN last year had the main issue was they focused on groundwater and type was making the invisible visible. And I think certainly cars helps us understand some types of groundwater systems. And then I really admire how you have been able to bring these two things together, science and the arts. And we will include links to these various things on the on the website so people can access them and listen and watch. So you've been working in Ireland for a couple of decades now, and you've been trying to deal with the challenges with water. How, how do you see the future evolving? Are you optimistic about the future and think they'll be able to cope with all the the increasing climate extremes and things like that or i mean i I mean i'm quite optimistic as a person anyway i i I think there's much more knowledge and information and tools available tools in terms of analyzing contaminants or mathematical tools or computing i mean it's it's unbelievable the speed of change i think in technology etc over the the last 20 years, I mean, maybe people would say it has been for the last 100 years, I, I guess, but certainly since I've been in research, what we know now is incredible. So if we have knowledge and we have tools to be able to do it, I guess the, the final part of the puzzle is convincing people who have control of the money to put resources into solving these problems. But 
I am an engineer at heart and I, I believe we can solve probably we we create a lot of problems of course environmentally but I think we have the ability to to, to solve a lot of these things I mean it is slow I mean environmental processes are as we've seen in in the rivers there's big lags in in, in the system so that is problematic I think politically sometimes in that you don't necessarily see the results very quickly although we have a big project at the moment trying to date groundwater in Ireland and really it's all about nitrates because there's been a lot of work in trying to reduce nitrates in groundwater and yet it seems to be reducing but how long is the groundwater hanging around there before it gets flushed out etc but I mean just with the knowledge and the tool I mean we we have much better insights and than we used then but and also the more you know the more you realize you don't know of course so I, I feel fairly optimistic but undoubtedly there's big challenges and, and of course the predictions for Ireland as a lot of places is more intense storms in the winter and less rainfall in in the summer so you got droughts on one side and floods on the other once we have an awareness of that we can try to mitigate these the, the, some of the consequences of, of that well i agree with you and i think you use satellite data a lot for looking at the bogs and 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 how they are changing over time so we have a lot of new tools and and like talking to engineers because they're solution focused and it's not just all crises and but trying to come up with appropriate solutions. I really admire your work and appreciate all that you're doing. I look forward to visiting Trinity in August and hope we can get together. And our guest today is Lawrence Gill, who is a professor in engineering at Trinity College Dublin. Thank you so much, Lawrence, for discussing these issues. Have a good day. Thanks, brilliant.